My name is Matthew Taylor. I'm the Chief Executive of the RSA here in London. And in this podcast, I'm putting my guests on the spot. There are really huge questions that if we choose to face them, we could answer well and that could move us forward. Throughout this series, I'm asking leading experts, renowned thinkers and global leaders to offer me one big idea that could help shape the new era we're moving into. What I hope is that this crisis gives us the opportunity to update our worldview, move to a different kind of ideology. This is Bridges to the Future from the RSA. A few years ago, before young people were as aware as they are now, I was asked to give a talk about climate change to some school children. Every year, I said, your parents choose to spend hundreds of pounds on something you can't see or use or share. And at the end of the year, when the money has gone and there's absolutely nothing to show for it, they spend it all over again. My point was that if the children's parents spent a few percent of their disposable income every year to ensure against the unlikely possibility of fire, theft or a car crash, shouldn't countries be willing to spend a similar proportion of their income to protect against something that scientists say is very likely and a risk to us all? Looking back, I guess that in my simplistic way, I was making a case which is at the centre of the book we're going to discuss today on Bridges to the Future. The Precipice by Toby Ord. Hi, Toby. How are you? Uh, Very well, thanks. Great to be here. Well, thank you for joining us. So before we get into the book, Toby, tell us where it came from. Is it a natural expression of your day-to-day work or was there a kind of moment in the shower or out running or something where you thought, oh my God, this is the book I need to write? Well, actually, it originated shortly after I came to Oxford in 2003 I met someone here called Nick Bostrom, who set up the Future of Humanity Institute, where I now work. And I'd been very focused on moral issues in my life and was studying moral philosophy. And my chief interest was on global poverty, and that's something that's still very close to my heart. And Nick suggested that actually, you know, what might be even more important is preventing the end of the world. And I thought that this sounded very outlandish. And he pointed out that the end of the world would kill everyone and would also mean that there was no future generations. Our entire future would be gone, which made sense. It was very big. But it still seemed like something out of a comic book plot or something like that. Not the kind of thing that, you know, sensible people take seriously as one's life's work. And so it actually took a long time for me to really resituate this. It felt like global poverty was something that was very urgent. You could see the direct need. But then I realized that actually humanity had come to a very difficult time. If you zoom out and look at the whole of human history from the earliest times until now, it seems that only starting in the 20th century did we reach this very dangerous time where there really are serious possibilities that this could be the end of humanity, nuclear weapons being the first one and climate change being another big risk. And there seems, if you look forward, to actually be more such risks. And I started to take this more seriously and to realize that protecting the very long-term future of humanity was also urgent, because only we can protect people from the risks that we face right now. People in the distant future, you know, have no ability to protect themselves from these things that really are in our hands. So this was something that I first heard from Nick, but it took quite a while before I realized just how 
sensible and serious a concern this was that really everyone should take seriously, not the kind of thing that, you know, as our culture just treated it as this kind of comic book plot. Well, we'll get into a lot of that in our conversation, I know, but I'm duty bound to ask you the question we ask everybody on this podcast as a way of stimulating our conversation. So, Toby Yord, what is your big idea for the post-COVID world? Well, I think that we need to take protecting our future seriously. We've just suffered from a once-in-a-century event, and this is the largest pandemic in a century and probably the biggest global event since World War II. And this reminds us that if there is a once-in-a-century event, there's still you know, a 5% chance it would happen during any particular political term. These are serious chances, and these things happen. You know, Many people will witness one of these things in their lifetime. And it really has helped us understand that these low-probability, high-impact events are real. They're not just something that you know, sober, serious people should kind of, like buying insurance, you know, eating your vegetables. It's the type of thing that has a very serious chance of happening. And we need to take this wake-up call and this reminder that humanity is still vulnerable to these types of extreme risks. And just as actual case of COVID can stimulate our antibody responses, we're in this brief window where society has this kind of antibody response to big risks like this. And we need to seize this time and to put in place institutions in order to protect our future from things like this happening again. Was I right, Toby, in what I said at the beginning, which is that, in a sense, you're calling for us as a society, as a global society, to treat our collective future in the same kind of robust scientific way that we treat the risks that we face as individuals and families. I'm sure if I knew the actuarial rules, I could find out with incredible specificity the likelihood that is attributed to me having a car accident, given my age, where I live, the nature of my car, and all these kinds of things. And from that, we derive my car insurance price, which I pay every year. And in a sense, because your book has got an enormous amount of science and statistics in it, would I be right in saying that that's part of what you're trying to do is just to say, look, you know, take the kind of ideology and values out of this. We just ought to be investing in insuring ourselves in a robust and evidence-led way. Yes, I think that that's pretty much exactly right. The only real correction I would say to that metaphor is that with our insurance, you know, we're putting some money aside that will pay out to help compensate us if our house burns down or something like that. Whereas in this case, what we're thinking isn't that there'll be someone who will be able to pay us back if the world suffers a truly catastrophic event, but rather that it's money that goes towards preventing those events. In both cases, it's a matter of prudence. It's what a prudent person would do. But if anything, it's perhaps more like buying smoke detectors or fire extinguishers for your house. It's something that we're not doing that much of at the moment. If you look at the possibility of these existential risks, so that's risks that could cause either the extinction of humanity or other forms of permanent loss of our future potential, such as a unrecoverable collapse of civilization. Very little is spent on this at the moment. And it's very safe to say that the world spends more on ice cream than it does on protecting its long-term future. In the book, you analyse these risks in enormous depth. And I think that one of the things that struck me was that this book is a kind of 
antidote to fatalism in the sense that some of the risks you talk about and, you know, you give them very long odds kind of numbers, but, you know, the risk of an asteroid hitting us and causing the kind of event which wiped out the dinosaurs or whatever, that you do think you can put a mathematical, you can make some kind of assessment of the level of risk that is involved and therefore the level of kind of investment that is justified by that. So in a sense, you know, part of the problem here, isn't it, is that kind of, you know, the bullet that will get me has got my name written on it, which is a kind of sense that human beings have, which is, well, if something cataclysmic like this is going to happen, it's going to happen. There's nothing we can do about it. And you want to say, well, that's just not true. There is a lot we can do about the risks that we do know about. That's right. A lot of writing or popular culture about these catastrophic or existential risks is some kind of, it's almost like a glorification of the risks themselves. People want to see a film about an asteroid smashing into the earth or to read kind of top 10 lists of the ways that we might all die. And it's kind of titillating, whereas that's not my approach at all. My book and my work in general is about humanity itself. It's about the thousands of generations that came before us and the thousands of generations that could come after us if we can survive this particularly risky time. And it's about protecting our culture and our legacy through that time, where these risks are not these kind of exciting characters in the story so much as these things that we, you know, at all costs really must prevent. If you take something like an asteroid, this is a very interesting example because it's very well studied and we are sure that there really is a risk from asteroids. We know a lot about the extinction of the dinosaurs now. And for all that though, it's a small risk. It's well quantified. Insurance people would like it for that reason. But I would put the risk at about a one in a million chance over the next hundred years. Whereas I think the risk from anthropogenic causes, such as nuclear war, climate change, or even engineered pandemics, or perhaps some form of unaligned artificial intelligence, I think these risks are all substantially higher, but are much harder to quantify. There is this inherent problem here, which is not the case with insurance. With insurance, you can say of you know a million households, how many of those houses burn down each year, and you can actually get pretty good statistics on it. But the destruction of humanity is something that can only happen once. And so it's often difficult if there's a type of threat that has only existed for 75 years, like nuclear weapons. If you have 75 years without a nuclear war, that doesn't really help you quantify the probability of a nuclear war very much. So it is substantially harder and relies on somewhat more guesswork. But it was interesting when it came to COVID, where I'd thought this might be one of the key problems with existential risks, this epistemic problem. How do we know the real probabilities? But when it came to COVID, we actually had a pretty good idea of the chance of global pandemics of this scale. And that wasn't really the problem. The problem was political problems of actually taking that risk seriously when the last time something like this has happened was in our great-grandparents' time. It's interesting for me that your book confirms something which I have kind of tended to push against a bit, which is that, you know, almost every lazily written report about anything that you pick up will start off by going, the world is going through an unprecedented time of volatility and change. And I quite like it when more sober voices come along and say, actually, this isn't really true. You know, look at the levels of kind of polarization and civic conflict in the 1960s or, you know, look at the divisions of the 1930s or go back further. But you 
actually wants to say that the first argument, that is, as it were, an unprecedented time for humanity, it is a pivotal time for humanity, you do want to defend that position, but you want to defend it not through a kind of lazy set of hyperboles, but through a very specific analysis of this point. So tell us a little bit more, Tobia, why you think this particular moment is so significant. Yeah, that's right. And I share your frustration when people get so excited about the current moment being unprecedented to some extent with COVID, as often said to be an unprecedented pandemic, whereas, you know, 1918 flu was worse. And if you go back to 1347 and the Black Death, vastly worse. That was something where about one in three people in Europe was killed and about one in 10 people in the entire world died over a few years through that pandemic. If anything, what would be unprecedented is getting out of that period of vulnerability to existential risks. And that's something I think we should strive for, but it hasn't happened yet. But in the book, what I say about our time is that humanity has always been vulnerable to natural risks, but that from the fossil record, it's possible to kind of bound the probability of natural risks and to show that it must actually be quite small or else we couldn't have survived for 2,000 centuries. You know, the risk has to, roughly speaking, be below one in 2,000 per century to have survived this long. Whereas once we developed nuclear weapons, humanity's escalating power finally reached a point where we could pose risks of our own at the level of these natural catastrophes, but perhaps with a much higher chance of happening, but much harder to measure. And I'm not the first person to suggest this. I think Carl Sagan was very influential on this, to suggest that humanity's escalating power finally reached this point, but humanity's wisdom has not caught up. We're not wise enough to ensure that we don't destroy ourselves. And so if you think about this escalating trend in power, it appears if you look at the risks themselves that there's this increasing probability being caused by these more and more powerful technologies, last century and then this century, and then in the centuries to come. And it's an unsustainable level of risk, such that I can only see two possibilities really going forward. One is you know, the business as usual situation, where we have larger and larger risks each century, and eventually our luck runs out, and that's it for humanity. Or we get our act together, we realize the threats, and we make the changes that are needed. We gain our wisdom, and we put in place institutions and policies to ensure that the risk level drops substantially and then continues to shrink over time. Otherwise, we won't be able to get through this time. So I'm not saying that our decade or this 30 years is the most important time ever, but what I'm saying is that if you think of humanity's journey through time, that we've kind of come to this path along a cliffside with a precipice looming to our side, and that this is the most dangerous time we've been in so far, and perhaps we'll ever be in, and that it's probably you know on the scale of a couple of centuries long, because we couldn't survive more than a few more centuries with this level of unsustainable risk. So one way or the other, within the next century or few we will be at the end of this time. Yeah, now that argument reminded me of a cartoon that was in a textbook I read at school, which is, I think, a low cartoon. It's a picture of the earth, and on it there are two babies, and one has a nappy with the hammer and sickle on it, and the other has a nappy with the stars and stripes on it. And a figure is throwing a nuclear weapon between them as if it was a ball. And the caption is something like, you know, come babies, play with your new toy. And that kind of idea that humanity and its kind of social and cultural systems have not kept up with its technological potential and its risks, you know, is a very powerful one. Now, 
One of the other things about your book that I really thought was powerful was your emphasis on institutions, because I think institutions, generally speaking, don't get nearly enough attention in terms of understanding what's wrong with society and what needs to be changed about society. So let's focus on one risk. I think actually the risk which gets the highest single rating from you, which is that AI, as it were, we lose control of AI. Talk to us about that risk, Toby, but also talk to us about what you think is necessary in terms of the institutional response to the risk that, in the end, the robots become our masters. Well, yeah, this is a very tricky one. And one thing to say is that it's not so much robots that I'm worried about, but one way to talk about the risk from AI is to look at humanity compared to the other species and to ask, how did humanity get into this position where we alone are the species that are in control of our destiny. If you look at chimpanzees, they're ultimately at the mercy of humanity, for better or worse. The same with everything else. The reason that it's us who are in this commanding and controlling position is ultimately because of our cognitive abilities. It's not because of our strength or speed. It's because of our intelligence and our ability to cooperate to create something much larger than an individual human. You know, most of the things, if we look around, you know, they could never have been created by individual humans. And this cognitive difference is something that we're planning on surrendering. We're planning on building systems that are more intelligent than humanity. And this would kind of you know, dethrone us. This would take away the aspect that makes us exceptional. If this is a very narrow form of intelligence, say it's just the ability to detect which type of dog it is in a picture more accurately than a human can, that's not a risk. But the concern is that if AI succeeded in this holy grail of artificial general intelligence, building systems that are agents like humans and can act in the world and fulfill their goals, then there is a big question about why would it be that humanity would still be the only group in control of its own destiny? Why wouldn't it be that ultimately, you know, whether we survive or whether we fail is then at the mercy of these systems that we've built? And I don't think that it's obvious that we would fail in that transition. But if you look at what the experts on AI say, they say that there's about a 50% chance in the next 100 years that we develop these artificial general intelligence systems that can do all human jobs as effectively as a human. And so if there's about a 50% chance that we kind of you know, pass the torch here of being the most intellectually capable species on the planet... What's the chance that we, you know, that we fail in that transition, that we can't work out how to make sure that we are still calling the shots, even though this other group is better than us at our kind of key capability? And, you know, roughly speaking, I'd say that there's about an 80% chance that we get through that okay, and we work out how to manage that. But, you know, an 80% chance of getting through when there's a 50% chance of the thing happening in the first place ends up with about a 1 in 10 chance that this is the end for us and that we ultimately lose our control of our future at that point. So that's how I see the problem in its broader strokes. You know, one can get into the more details about, you know, deep learning and reinforcement learning and all of these things. But let's stay at this larger level. What should we do about that? I think it's deeply challenging. I mean, one answer, if humanity was very unified, would be just don't build these things. Are the benefits worth this risk? And to ask questions like that, or at least to say, could we go substantially slower on this to make sure that we have this wisdom and it keeps track with our power instead of our power racing away? But unfortunately, it looks like we don't have the institutions needed to show that level of 
continents as a civilization. You know, instead, once we have the ability to do something, it just tends to happen. And if the responsible nations all decided to go very slow, that might just be ceding the ability to create these systems to the less responsible nations. It's a real challenge. And I think that there are interesting technical challenges here for the relevant technical community, in particular, to try to work out how to build a artificial intelligence that is aligned with human values and what that even means. But trying to make a system both that can respond to our commands and do what we really want, but also a system where its aims are ultimately to produce the type of world that would be best for us. And these are very challenging technical tasks. And there's also these questions about how to govern such systems once we develop them. Even if the first system that was created was something that was safe, truly safe, what's to stop the second system being something that leads to our downfall? I think there's really big challenges here. It's interesting. I mean, we have seen the growth of a set of institutions which are exploring the ethical challenges and risks of AI, you know, Ada Lovelace Institute, for example, there's a center on data and ethic. You know, the, the institutional architecture is growing as people become aware of the risk. But it's interesting looking at the kind of risk rating you give to kind of AI becoming beyond our control, that it's nothing like the efforts that were made to create institutions to manage the risk of nuclear weapons. And whilst many of those institutions have atrophied recently because we have leaders like Trump around still in an enormous amount of expertise investment work went into trying to manage the nuclear risk and the effort that we're making to manage the risk of out of control ai is absolutely tiny in, in comparison i think that's a kind of interesting thing to reflect on now toby i could carry on talking about the book for ages but i'm going to challenge you a little bit as i like to do on the podcast just ask you a kind of couple of questions which don't question your core hypothesis but i think people might want to ask them having listened to the conversation that we have so the first is this I did an event with you, actually, a few weeks ago with, I think it was the Long Now Institute. And they, you know, that was an audience discussing these questions of the long term and long term thinking. And I think they were a bit surprised when I pointed out that you actually say that the risk, the existential risk of climate change is very small. You know, one in a thousand. I think they were thinking that your book would be yet more of a kind of clarion call. And I think the reason for that is because you're focused on existential risk. And ultimately, you think that although climate change might do enormous damage and great harm and might generate other risks, in the end, because in a sense, it's a slowly unfolding thing, human beings will adapt, they will do what is required. So that takes to the question, of, is the notion of existential risk, literally the ending of the human race, is that a useful thing to focus on? Shouldn't we be focusing on things that probably won't end the human race, but will do enormous damage to it? Well, I mean, we should focus on both. I think that there is a special type of harm from things where if you fail once at them, there's no return. Things that would not be a mere dark age in humanity's story, but the complete end of our story. When I was reflecting on the entirety of human history up until now, there are you know dramatic changes, such as the agricultural revolution and the industrial revolution. And yet, what we're facing now with this precipice is, I think, an even more important time because of this aspect that it's the entire future that's at stake. If what we were facing was a dark age, then that would definitely be less important in our history than the Industrial Revolution or the Agricultural Revolution. But if it's something that forecloses all possible major changes like these for the entire future, and that perhaps destroys a future which is vastly larger than our past has been, 
then really this is the biggest moment for us and perhaps the meaning of our time. But this doesn't mean that it's the only thing we should focus on. What I'm really saying is that there should be substantial focus on it. And it is, I think, these are the perhaps the most important centuries in the human story for this particular reason. But that doesn't mean that people shouldn't attend to other things, important matters in their family, if a loved one is very ill and tending to them, or other important matters for the people of our time or the near future times, such as other forms of damage from climate change, including other forms of catastrophic climate change that don't quite reach this level. Although you're somewhat sceptical about the kind of runaway climate change hypothesis, or you want to say that the balance of evidence doesn't yet support the idea of the likelihood of a kind of runaway process. Yeah, the runaway hypothesis, which is like Venus, where the oceans boil off, as opposed to talking about, say, six degrees of warming. We're talking about, you know, 50 degrees or more of warming. That is not supported really by any scientists. The general viewpoint is that it's been proved to be impossible on Earth, in fact, with any amount of carbon emissions, even if we burnt all the carbon. But I mean, I actually say in my book, compared to the scientific kind of establishment view, I think you know, there's some good papers saying it's impossible, but that doesn't mean it's impossible. And there could well be papers that, that say, oh, actually, we neglected some important factor. So I actually want to leave the door open to that, but it's not very likely. But it is probably more likely that we missed an important factor and that that's still on the table than that it is that we'll be hit by an asteroid of the scale needed to destroy us. So I think it's an important point, Toby, about your book, which is that it is as much about uncertainty as it is about certainty, and also that it is about something very specific, which is this question of existential risk. I want to come to a final question because you run out of time. And that is that although your book is about uncertainty, it is also full of statistics. It does have tables inviting us to compare various risks. Is there a danger that it simply underplays the incredibly contingent nature of human affairs? Because here we are talking before the American election, an election which I think it can be reasonably argued that were Donald Trump to be re-elected and to continue to become ever madder and ever more irresponsible, that this will generate an enormous set of risks. And yet his victory or his defeat may depend on a few thousand voters in a few American states. And all of this is going to happen in the next few weeks. Is the very process that you're involved in of encouraging us to think long term, to calculate things, defied by the fact that very small events in the very near term can have massive consequences? I don't think so. I'm not trying to suggest that there, for example, is a objective probability of nuclear war destroying humanity of one in a thousand every century, even though that's my best guess. What I'm saying is that one in a thousand is my best guess for that, given all of these contingencies. But if something you know extreme happens and, say, the Cold War rekindles, then the risk would go up. And that I agree that there are a lot of cases where these are very sensitive to individual lives people could live. I think that the making of the atomic bomb is a fantastic history to have a look at. If you want to see the types of ways that individual scientists or individual politicians, sometimes civil servants, had dramatic effects on a pivotal episode of human history. And it really helps you know, show, as you're saying, how contingent things can be. But there's a kind of two edges to that. Because the other one is that there's a lot of people who feel you know, that there's nothing we can do about these risks. It's just too big. Even entire governments often feel like that, that it's above their pay grade. But I think that if we look at these histories, we can see that 
you know, there were individuals who had really dramatic effects on the course of history. And we can kind of see why. And, you know, it's a very complicated game and uh, it'll get very messy and all of your best efforts could be swept aside at the last minute. But it's not like a drop in the ocean type thing. The chaos of the system, if anything, makes it more clear how each of us could have an important role to play. Well, the precipice existential risk and the future of humanity is a fantastic book. It's one of those books where when you read it, you want to go and grab somebody to have an argument with them about it. And I think that's always for me a strong recommendation of a book. So it's out there, get hold of it, have a read and start arguing. Toby Ord, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's been a pleasure. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.